Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I am your host, Brandi Miller, and today I am joined by my friend Elizabeth Moraf to talk about privacy. Now y'all, this conversation is a bit of a doozy because many of us were taught that privacy was not something that we were allowed or that was maybe even sinful. So Elizabeth and I spend a lot of time talking about the nuances theologically of that and some of the practical implications that many of us have experienced in our lives. I'll let you know, we cuss a lot in this one because we're buds and that's what we do when we talk to each other about these kinds of spiritual things. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. If you like the show, you can support by listening, which you're already doing, by sharing with your friends, by subscribing, rating, reviewing, or joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash reclaiming my theology. We are always looking for input, so feel free to send your questions, comments, guest requests, and whatnot to reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. I'm aware that this season has been a heavy one, and this one is not as different, but tonally maybe so. So please enjoy this conversation with Elizabeth Moraf. Let's do this. I am so grateful to have you back to talk about something that is not anti-Semitism. So it really is a gift in lots of ways to have you on. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time and for being here with me today. You're welcome. My new goal is to make you laugh with my faces and no one's going to know why you're laughing because no one can see us. <laughs> and the problem is I'm such a giggler and I am so, so taken aback by things that I'm like, uh, and then I get weird. So here we are. <laughs> but Elizabeth, yeah. I really am like without joke, grateful to have you on. And for people who don't know, which would be no one because I don't talk about this that often, but you and I have a very funny relationship because most of it is through sending voice memos about justice or theological or pop culture things that we're interested in and kind of obsessively engaging with, but maybe just like a little bit behind the curve on pop culture and a little bit in front of the curve on other things. And so I just wanted to name that I appreciate your friendship and that part of this conversation is birthed out of the very regular communication that we have via voice memo and quippy text between the things we're already doing. <laughs> well, with that then, for folks who don't know you, obviously they need to get to know you a little bit. So Elizabeth, I would love for you to describe for folks, what does it mean to be you right now yes so the first thing i want to say is that i have a high need for closure so i stressed about this question and the other thing that's incredibly me is uh what i did for myself is i asked myself a question in response and it was what do people need to know about me for this conversation to make sense so there you go. Two things. It needs to be me to have a desperate need for closure and to ask lots of questions in ter- even if that is in response to another question. And that comes in part from the fact that I am Jewish. And so something that's different um, than last time I was on is I am 100% a fish now. So <laughs> meaning that I was raised in an interfaith household. My mother is from Puerto Rico. So being uh, Puerto Rican is also a huge part of my identity. Um, so, And she was raised Catholic, and my dad was raised Jewish. And if you know anything about Jewish law, you know that for most Jews, being Jewish is passed through the mother, not the father. So since we last talked, I did what I needed to do to kind of affirm my Jewish status. And the reason I want people to know that is because I might say some things that you're like, that doesn't sound very Christian. And I want you to know you're right. <laughs> so, so well done on your observations. I really mean, and I mean that for you, for people listening. Yeah, I think that's helpful to know. I think the other thing that is something else that, well, okay. So one thing also that it means to be me, which is going to be interesting in this conversation, because I think we're going to talk about boundaries, is I think I have someone who has lived on the edge of 
community's boundaries. So even mm-hmm. what it means to be have one parent giving you a Latina identity. And I'm saying that because I'm a woman. Side note, I don't like Latinx. I think it's very hard to say I like Latine. So if I need to gender neutralize it, that's where I'm going to go with. And um, to be Jewish, but also not always everywhere and to grow up in an interfaith space. I also grew up, I was born in DC and I grew up in PG County, which is the wealthiest majority minority county in the country. And I was the only non-Black family in my neighborhood growing up, apart from the Vietnamese family across the street. Um, And the other thing, since we're going to talk about boundaries, is um, my mom's one of seven and siblings who were going to come make it on the mainland often stayed with our family first. So I grew up with lots of family coming in, coming out, staying with us. So one part of what it means to be me is held by the communities I am attached to and other people. And what it means to be me right now, and I've thought about this, I want to throw out, I have a friend who might listen to this, who I want to just, who is grieving the loss of her son. And I just want to encourage her to like skip forward a minute if she wants. And for anyone who's like her, yeah, I'm thinking of her. I think of her every day. If she's listening, I'm not blowing smoke or sunshine up her butt. I really do think about you every day and your son. Okay, is that right now what it means to be me is to be in a really sweet sweet phase of life yeah my life is so good right now I don't know how Mm -hmm. to describe it (laughs) um I live close to extended family I have two two children I had one since uh we spoke last and they are just they are great they are delightful um my partner's really great and I think we just look at each other and sometimes we're just like we have the best life um Mm -hmm. in the whole world so, so that's part of what it means to be me. And at the same time, I'm also going through um, a pretty painful estrangement at the moment. And so I'm also grieving two people who are still alive, which mm. I'm still trying to figure out how to do. So I think that's another thing of what it means to be me is what does it look like to lean fully into joy and be, yeah, to just, I really enjoy life. And I want to be present in it. So I, I think that often means ending up being so like deeply grateful and happy and like having some pain at other things. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it means to be me. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate that. And I think, again, a lot of what you said feels very relevant to where we're going to be going today. Um, because this season, we've been talking a lot about purity culture and a lot of the nuances of what it means to exist specifically in Christian purity culture, but the ways that that kind of bleeds out into every other aspect of not just American society, but Western society and mm-hmm. into the judgments that the Western world makes about the rest of the world. Like, there's so much in there. And so each episode I've been asking folks who are on to give me a little bit of your background or history with purity culture. Yeah. Where has that intersected with your life or with your work or with who you are as a person? Yeah. So hmm, I think one way it's intersected with my life was actually the way I was sexualized as a Latin looking person. If that makes sense. I think you've talked in episodes about how like non-white women don't get to be pure. And so I think actually one way I experienced it was just the way people talked about my body from puberty onwards <laughs> as an object of desire. or I think that's one way. My mom did, tr- my parents were, 
I think it's worth saying that like wrapped up in this conversation is how we're taught about sex. I think I did grow up believing that sex could ruin your life. I think some of that's purity culture. I think some of that's also my parents' unique regret for decisions in their own lives and being really honest mm -hmm. about that. Um, yeah. And they were always really open. Sex was very openly spoken about in my household. But my mom did at one point try to give me a purity ring. Like my parents <laughs> took me out to dinner and they like gave me this ring and they told me what it was. And, you know, my dad's just appeasing my mom at this point. And I literally just said, no, thank you. I'm not promising <laughs> that. <laughs> and I literally just slid it back across the table. <laughs> that is and, the greatest. <laughs> and they kept it. They kept it. And so when I got engaged, they gave it back to me. And uh, it was an opal ring. And if you don't know, opals are really soft stones. So I accidentally like blew up the stone later, which I thought was kind of funny and symbolic anyway. That's <laughs> amazing. Um, and then the other thing I think I could say about purity culture is I did attend InterVarsity in college. And, and I think that was around the time where I like maybe thought you were supposed to wait to have sex until marriage. But I was like very clear with God. I said, God, um, you have until I'm 30. I'll give you until I'm 30 and then I'm going out and I'm going to have sex. Like I gave you a shot. Like a girl's got to live. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's also That's what it amazing. means to be me. I think. Yep. I think that does feel like a very accurate depiction of how you interact with creator and how you, <laughs> yeah. and how you show up in the world. That is what what I love to hear that is um, that you're not like, I was fucking traumatized. You're like, well, there were some things that happened. There were some signposts that I didn't really decide to follow, which I think for many of us is probably a breath of fresh air for those of us who maybe a little bit more into compliance than the average person, which is me. That yeah. is me. Well, if I could be like super graphic, I do think something my parents did really well was instill a sense of my own value to me. So I, in my teen years, like was in situations where I like could have had sex and literally like right before I was like I actually don't like him that much and just said no and literally like walked out of naked guys <laughs> and you know thanks be to god I yes. was able to do that and it feels yes. horrible to say that like I was lucky that feels awful to say but like yep um all those things are true I'll just leave that there yes Yes, and in all of those things being true, the ways that we think about like responsibility, consent, desire are not taught to many of us. And so, yeah, it does feel in some ways lucky that you were not given messages that made you unable, as many of us are, to get in situations we don't want to be in. Which, or you know, again, it gets that we toe the line of like abuse language and all of that. I'm hoping that listeners will give me a benefit of a doubt in what yeah. I'm saying here. So today we're going to talk about the concept of privacy. Um, and I wanted to have this conversation for a lot of reasons. But one is that I grew up in a church context where the only people that were afforded privacy were actually not people. They were institutions that were represented by people. So if I were to do anything, yes. I had no privacy because there was a power relationship that ensured that the person in power, people in power, the institution got to hold every piece of information in my life because they were quote unquote shepherds or something like that. So people didn't get, people without power did not get any privacy, but institutions themselves that were covering up problematic stuff had all kinds of mechanisms and systems in place to engage with privacy, particularly around sexual, emotional, and spiritual abuse. 
And so as we have this conversation on purity and purity culture, I think this conversation about privacy is really important. And I love your thoughts on this. And so to get on the same page and to help listeners along in, because I don't think actually a lot of us actually think about privacy very much. Can you describe what privacy is both generally and then as you think about it theologically? Yeah. What is privacy? I think it's an ability to draw a space out for yourself where no one else is allowed to come in. So privacy could live inside that space, but I think it also encompasses the autonomy to do mm. that. But uh, but also it's not just about autonomy because, I don't know, I think privacy is the right to not share your whole self with people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think something I, so I think expressions of this is I, as I've been thinking about this, it has struck me that even animals have privacy like animals will retreat to spaces to just be with themselves or with their young Mm -hmm. or like even like the idea of like territory how like one tiger can't come over here because it belongs to another tiger it Mm -hmm. has to do a lot with the ability to draw lines and the ability to draw boundaries but also to have people respect them and so it's yeah i'll start there it's also a un right it's a human right according to the un which i was surprised to find out which I think is wildly important and very bizarre given the kind of surveillance we live under both governmentally and by extension in religious spaces. Yeah, when I think about privacy, one of the things I've been thinking about is just privacy is about having a life that you don't share with others. Yes, exactly. It's being able to say, this is mine. It's just for me. Yes, or for who I choose for it to be with. Yes, it's both. There's like different degrees because I also think like people groups can have privacy. So I think another way to think about privacy is the right not to be understood. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think that's huge. Yes. And the right for some, the eyes of someone else to determine who you are in those spaces. Like when I think about like black community spaces and how when one white person comes into a black space where we're doing something that's like very, very black, it, it, it ruins the experience because the person's eyes in a private moment kill the private moment because it's meant to be shared between a particular group of people in a particular context that those people are self-identifying and participating in. Yes. So I know this is obnoxious and I just apologize to any physicists out there, but I've thought a lot about the double slit experiment when thinking about this. Do you know, do you know, or I'll just summarize. I want you to explain it either way. I'm sorry. Basically it's like, you can look up a YouTube video called Dr. Quantum, the double slit experiment. I'm like by no means at a physicist level, but Dr. Quantum is very helpful. Long story short, light behaves like a wave when it's being left alone and like a particle when it's being observed and measured. So basically the, the point that I'm trying to draw out, don't come at me physicists if I got it. Well, come at me. I'm happy to learn. But like is um, the mere act of observing and trying to measure changed its character the way that's actual property in the world um yeah yeah and, and so it sounds like you're saying in some ways without privacy we cannot actually fully be ourselves like there's yes. something about privacy 100%. that that outside of observation allows us to be and become fully and in that to exercise some level of self-determination in that kind of becoming in private space so one cannot actually become fully if they do not have privacy because privacy in and of itself is a non-physical and sometimes physical space to become yes so another maybe metaphor that i think about is like 
when a caterpillar metamorphosizes into a butterfly, it literally like liquefies. Mm-hmm. And so it's contained in a chrysalis so that it can become a liquid and then reform. But like privacy is your chrysalis. Like it is the space, the external space you've drawn so you can liquefy. But if you can't liquefy, mm. you can't like transform, which mm. so you can pull me back if we don't want to get there yet. I think something that frustrates me to no end is that I think one of the ways that abusive everything works is they take real things and good things and true things and they just skew them off a little bit so that it ruins everything. And so one of those things that I'm thinking about that I don't have a good answer for, but a question I've had as we've been talking is to what privacy is God entitled? Like, <laughs> like I think the line of like, oh, you should, you don't, God's mystery, you don't have to understand, has been so abused. It's been so abused. And I think, like, I, I, and so I've been trying to think, is there a way to, I also think there is something that should have been beautiful about figuring out how to engage with God in the absence of, like, complete understanding, or, like, with a respect Mm. that God is, that God to me is a little bit like the double slit experiment too. Like, I think that like God is like God is. So sometimes in our conversations, you've heard me kind of make this distinction between like God as an elemental force that is and, Mm -hmm. and God as a being or a sentience. And Mm -hmm. so I think like there's a degree to which like, I do want to be able to engage God without having to totally understand God and I'm not sure what the and is but I know that like that line or even what I just said might feel triggering for folks because it's been so horribly abused and I feel like that's sad because I think there's was something in there that is instructive for us but it was also an invitation that we are to emulate like that mm-hmm. I expect people to be willing to engage with me without always understanding, you know? Yeah. Um, or I, or yeah. other creations, right? Like, yes. I just I just don't need to be involved in everything. Yes. <laughs> and, like, and that, for me, is wacky that we don't think about that. Like, yeah. that we assume that to love or to know or to lead or to shepherd or to pastor people is to intrude on every part of their life when yeah. that very intrusion disallows people the ability to grow and to be themselves. And so one of the ways I've thought about privacy is uh, – that there that it's like a set of personal boundaries about your history, your thoughts, your opinions, your experiences that are separate from someone else or yes. from another being. So like separate yes. from God, separate from your partner, separate from your friend. Privacy is like a a set of held things that do keep you separate from another in a way that isn't bad. It is let's jump in can i can i jump in i think this is where we've talked about a really seminal critically important text for understanding this to me is creation is creation that that god separates like the act of creation i'm reading a jewish theology book that talks about this is that god creates by separating that god says let there be light 
let there be an expanse between the waters. Okay, let the dry land come. Oh, let let the waters be gathered to one place. That like God's act of creation is about separating things and um, drawing boundaries between them. Yeah, I, I think another thing that is important about this is I also think, so I work in digital marketing and 45's presidency actually really changed the way I thought about my work because I realized language is is crazy powerful language is so powerful um so i believe there's material there's material in the world there's a reality that is right there is just a reality that is but we also know that language and culture can shape reality like and those mm-hmm. those two and i i don't like how dualistic that is i don't think that's sure. it's that way but we'll do it for a shorthand those two talk to each other um and so in creation, it's beautiful because God's word is one with the material creation. The lingual creation and the material creation is one and the same. Hmm. Let there be light. And there is. Like, language also has the ability to create, like, things. And inherent is that, in that, that I think is also interesting, is, like, someone can have privacy if we all act like if we all respect their privacy, even if maybe we all know. <laughs> yes. So yes. like, so I think that's, there's the like enactment of privacy. Like there's times where we all know someone's business has been put out there in a big way, but we don't all just say like, you're naked, <laughs> like, you know, or like whatever. We know that like we can hold that boundary for them a little bit for good yes. or for ill. If we kind of like avert our eyes. Yes. Um, Sorry, so I'll just close the loop. What that has to do with my job and with 45 is that I realized he would just say words that were not connected at all to reality. And yet they created a reality for people. And Mm -hmm. I realized in my job, my job is to do the same thing, but for the forces of good. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking about even communities role in privacy, which is like sometimes someone sets a boundary in and of themselves. And sometimes there's just things that we know people don't want aired. And I even think about how I learned this, which is actually in church, which was great. Though what I want to name is that theologically, and let's talk about privacy and theology specifically, because we've already gone there with the Genesis stuff some, but I was taught to kind of contrasting ideas. One is that people would misuse the text in Luke 12, where Jesus is giving a sermon on the plains and he's talking about religious leaders and he's like, don't fall for their stuff. And like, there's some issues, you know, we can talk about all of that, especially in our cross faith context, but probably for another time. But then what he says is like, everything that's in the dark is going to be made light. Everything that's been like whispered in secret is going to be revealed. And that was used as a threat. And so it was like, God doesn't care about your privacy because everything that you do is going to get aired out there, which isn't what the text is saying, but that's how it was used. But then it was contrasted with this story in uh, Genesis 9, where Noah has had this traumatic experience of seeing everyone he knows die. (laughs) Die? (laughs) And he gets on land and clearly doesn't know what to do, gets super drunk, ends up naked. Which I'm like, of course. Like this. Yeah, <laughs> How many of us I'm would like, do that? I'm like, <laughs> it seems very relatable. Like when you don't, know, you just do it. And then there's this like whole ordeal where hit one of his sons 
covers him in his nakedness and in this like kind of shameful moment he's having and the other one doesn't and it's not i think i was taught that like you are to cover people's shame and so there was something about privacy that was always connected to shame which i think has a yes. really good implication if you're thinking about it on behalf of other people's well-being and becomes really problematic when we start to talk about purity culture because anything that is i think the line of reasoning becomes something to the effect of privacy equals secrecy equals you're not being above reproach equals sin and so privacy gets withdrawn from people because secrecy in and of itself becomes this bad thing and since everything needs to be out in the light for god you have no privacy in religious spaces and so when it comes to purity culture i've often seen leaders feel very entitled and i've done this myself so i don't want to act like i'm above this feel very entitled to very intimate and private knowledge about people we're leading's lives, particularly their sex lives, because we feel this like visceral, and I don't even think it's like a whatever Christian or biblical or whatever idea of needing to paternalistically, paternalistically control what people do. And so privacy becomes yes. and gets withdrawn from people. It is a power that we have inherently in our humanity that is retracted from us, particularly in our sexual and intimate relationships in order to yes. create patterns of control. And so I think about how I heard those two texts contrasted in such a peculiar way where I was both yes. taught that like everything is shameful and it's going to be seen. Therefore you should like live in fear and like live in a certain way that doesn't give offer you privacy, but also that when stuff happens, you should offer people the dignity that is inherent in like not letting your, letting someone's business be out there when you know that that's not what you would want for yourself. So many issues. <laughs> so I think it all stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of God and what God's up to. I think it is, I think something that I find incredibly valuable is I think God goes at the pace of humanity, which is an inherently boundary respecting way of doing things mm. um i think i think so going back to the separation thing so like if 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 creation is about separation whether that's you're an artist and you publish your work and it's out in the world and like you or you i don't know any number of creative access that thing takes on a life of its own you know and you you because you've because it is now its own creation you literally can't get it back like imagine an author trying to like sit in on every English class discussion and control how people were interpreting their book, you know, like yeah. that's insane. That's, and so I think like, I can't imagine that God created for the purposes of the pleasure of micromanaging us. Like, mm -hmm. I just don't think that's what was happening. And, and, but so I think I, one way I see God's respect of privacy come out is in the questions that God asks. And this goes back is like, so I think we can say, I think we can say that God, if you want to believe that God is omniscient, and I actually do, because, you know, if God's an elemental force, God, and God is, if there's no good thing apart from God, God's in every good thing. And so God's there when something is good. Like, yeah. Um, but I, I don't think there's a voyeurism to it, you know? Right. And I think that in the same way we can hold boundaries for other people and kind of say like, whoop, nothing to see there. Um, I think God can do the same thing. And I think we see this when God asks questions, like, mm. like Jesus asking, what do you want me to do for you? 
Mm-hmm. Or um, even God saying to Adam and Eve, where are you? Who mm-hmm. told you you were naked? Like, and, and, and I'm going to take a tangent. So I have two small children. And I've thought about that moment when God, God says, where are you? There are times when my older daughter, who's four, has done things she's not supposed to do. And I'll ask her a question, knowing full well what she's done. <laughs> but I'm assessing two things. One of the things is I'm assessing, like, one of the things I'm assessing is, is she ready to tell me? Mm. You know? And and if she's not, it doesn't matter if I berate her. You know what I mean? Like, she's not ready to face me. So, like, who cares? Like, that's, in some ways, that's the most important question. And so when God comes up to Adam and Eve and says, like, where are you? I think God is trying to say, like, are they ready? How are they doing? Are they ready to face me? <laughs> you know? Um, so, which is, again, it's, it's, that's a very respectful. God could have just blown in and said, like, I know what you've been up to in there. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and no, it's, a, it's very gentle and it's, it leaves space for their becoming you know yeah. um so so i do think there's a fundamental misunderstanding i think i think pardon me but i will go ahead and say i do think christianity has constructed god kind of as a narcissist mm-hmm. someone who feels entitled to mm-hmm. be in all places everywhere who wants to have who's offended when we try to self-differentiate who's offended by boundaries and i just want to laugh because i feel like anyone who, i feel like if you just I understand Christianity is a different religion and like now these texts are in the world, they can belong to all people. And if you just looked at how Jewish people relate to God, I think you would just realize that that's very wildly off course. (laughs) um, So, so, okay. And then the other thing that's about, so I think part of why people feel entitled to invade other people as members, as church authorities is because they think God does the same thing. And so yes. I am an image of God in people's lives. And so I must reenact what God is doing. And yes. that is this invasion. This is this policing. Um, so I think that's how I would tie the two. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you talked earlier about like the idea of like God is omniscient. And I know some people are like, God's omnipotence, omnipresence, you know, like all of that stuff, like God's all powerful, all knowing and all present. And And I don't have an issue with those concepts functionally, but I think what happens is then, as you're saying, Christian leaders feel like they need to be all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present, all-powerful. And I think the all-present piece functions both in the actual and in the metaphorical, both in kind of the chaperoning postures that are used in churches to keep people from any kind of like sexual or even just like relational intimacy at all and the ways that that sets up these strange cultures but then also the kind of metaphorical presence that christian leaders want to have in the bedroom with people and in people's intimacies and in their lives like memorize scripture in this way when when something when like you're about to do whatever like i want this to be in your head and so there's a type of indoctrinating that i feel like uh violates people's privacy through power and ideology and then there's like another type of it that robs people of the agency of disclosure because you are being threatened with the consequence 
of non-disclosure. And we could talk literally about like non-disclosure agreements and all of that, because I think that's a huge part of purity culture and how powerful people are protected. But I think that that those kind of dual images of you rob someone of their of the agency to decide whether they want to disclose a private part of their lives with you and you become an omnipresent figure in their life through your ideology and indoctrination. Yeah. Well, and I think I'll go ahead and I'll I will say I think this is actually a direct result around Christianity's theology around sin and atonement, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh if I if I may. <laughs> I think Christianity does not have a vision for people to grow. I think sometimes the way the Jesus narrative is cast is like God, the helicopter parent was like, you guys are just so incapable. Let me come in and take care of this for you. You just follow me around and, you know, I'll take you to the playground once you die, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, and so so here's here's where it does get complicated right is and again i'm thinking of this as a parent there is there is kind of sometimes there are moments where people are not able to hold boundaries themselves or they may not have the right information to know how to protect themselves or like to draw boundaries that are healthy and good um but like the hope is that a person is able to come out of that either through growth or, um, you know, something that, that I think about is like the, the childbirth is a very, like, I wasn't sitting around thinking about my own privacy, you know, like, um, you, but you're entitled. So I can't hold it. I'm not sitting there. This is a tangent, but, but I think that's, what's so like horribly evil about medical anti-blackness is that here are these women or people giving birth, women and people who are giving birth or however you want to phrase that, people giving birth. And they need the space to be taken care of more than anything in that moment. And and we just don't do it. Like we don't mm-hmm. do it. And And so the idea that like, the idea that a black woman would have to try and advocate for herself in the middle of giving birth mm-hmm. is just such a violation yes. of it's I go quiet because my whole body just feel fills with rage. Like I begin mm-hmm. to smoke, like my skin smokes, like it's, it's cruel. It's, mm-hmm. It's cruel because it's not possible. Like, it, it's just, it's the worst kind of cruelty. Like, I, I just, I can't even get into it. We're just like, I'm going to stuff that away and like, come over here. Um, so I think, I think the Christian narrative, part of why I think the church feels like it needs to be involved is because they see people as incapable yes. of creating good boundaries for themselves. And I think that, that that follows directly from the theology around sin and, and the lack of, and this idea of a stagnant grace that blankets and releases people from responsibility, which Mm -hmm. I don't see in the text. So a seminal, a seminal text for me in thinking about this is some roles you cannot abdicate. Like I could walk out of my children's lives today And I recognize there's a trigger warning to be had if this was your experience. 
But like I could walk out of my children's lives today and there is no way to replace me. Like it's a role that I cannot abdicate. And even if I abdicate it or try, my absence is its own role. Like mm -hmm. my choice to abdicate it is its own role. So the text is when Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard and is crying, you know, crying about it and kind of whimpering in the corner. And Jezebel says, oh my gosh, like, hush, man, I'll go get it for you. And she gets Naboth killed. But when Elijah comes, Elijah comes to Ahab. And we can talk about patriarchy, but Elijah comes to Ahab and says, because of what you have done, all of Israel has sinned. All of Israel is guilty of this sin. And what that said to me is like, it doesn't matter if Jezebel did it because Ahab was the person in authority and his mm -hmm. abdication of it was its own choice out of his authority. And God doesn't care. Like God holds Ahab responsible. I think God expects us to try. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do. Uh, so, but I, I do think like, sorry. So looping back, I think, and this is what's so noxious about some unhealthy forms of raising children is the inability to let your kids experiment with their own boundaries. Like, mm -hmm. I think the church is like that. The church is like, oh, humans are incapable of growth. Thank you, total depravity which shout out to the Eastern Orthodox church is not a theology in the Eastern Orthodox church. Like it's not even in, it's not even something accepted in all Christendom. I think it might mm -hmm. be important for your listeners to hear that mm -hmm. total depravity, like is in the Eastern Orthodox church, Adam and Eve are conceived of as children who need to grow up. So anyway, sorry, just for folks who don't know that the idea of uh, total depravity is essentially that you come out sinful and problematic and therefore justifies any action that God might have to take to try to bring you back into quote unquote right relationship or to bring the cosmic universe into a place of harmony with God. Right. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Yep. I am helpless in the face of sin. And I don't mm -hmm. think we see that. I think we see God coming to Cain and saying, sin crouches at the door and wants to devour you. Don't give in. And then Cain gives in. But like, you know, like God seems to think that Cain has agency there. You yes. know? <laughs> well, and I think what becomes challenging about that too is that without agency, and with that combination, with the combination of a lack of agency and Christian leaders being in the spaces that they are and feeling like that idea of sin and total depravity and all of that, it's playing out, it makes it so that we assume that people are unreliable stewards of their own private lives. Yes. While what the reality is, is that most Christian leaders are unreliable stewards of people's private information. And so <laughs> <laughs> it's so pl it's obvious. I love that you said that because I'm like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I just think that it gets complicated because then we have to set up systems of like confession circles and you create guilt complexes to help people feel really bad about their sins such that they think the only way to deal with the shame or the guilt or the private stuff that they do that they maybe don't feel anything about is to talk about it to someone else who then will then make them feel bad. Like one thing that I thought was uh, that happened to me and it was like right when I kind of knew that my compassion for pastoral ministry was over is I had a young woman come to me. She was like, hey, I need to talk. And I was like, well, I, it's not how I ever want to start a conversation with someone who I'm leading. But she's like, I need to talk. 
And so she comes and we're sitting at this like, uh, getting nachos at like a place that's like a bar, you know, during the evenings, but like a regular like beer spot with nachos during the days. So we're sitting there over nachos and she starts weeping. She's like, oh. I just have to tell someone like I got drunk and I made out with a boy at a party last oh. night. And I was like, oh, that's so, I feel relieved. I feel relieved. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was going to be really terrible. Yeah. And I was like, and I just remember like kind of furrowing my eyebrow as she's bawling. Yeah. And I was like, why did you feel the need to tell me that? Yeah. And she was like, because I, because something, something about God. And I just turned to her and I was kind of like, baby, I don't think God cares about that. Like, do yeah. you feel bad? I said, are you, were you safe? And are you okay yeah. now? Yes. And she said, yes. And I said, it sounds like you want me to make you feel really bad about what you did because you've had experiences of Christian leaders that say that you feeling bad and then someone knowing that you feel bad and making you feel worse is somehow penance and somehow makes you more acceptable to God. And so she felt this need to disclose private information to an authority figure in a way that did give me some power to manipulate her to if I, had I like been a worse person, like when the reality was like, she just needed to know that she was okay. Cause I basically was just like, girl, you'll probably do more than that in your life. And like, knowing that you're loved by God who allows you to explore and make mistakes and still cares about you feels far more important for me to engage than did you make out with a boy at a party while you were drunk? Cause I'm like, of course you did. You're 19. Like, of course you did. Yeah. And so it just felt like this example of how the language and imagery that she'd been given about privacy was completely incompatible with her own ability to love herself and to heal. And not in some kind of like abstract liberal progressive way, just like a literal, like, she had no ability to set a boundary in her own life about what was not for me and what was for her and whoever she chose to share that with. And so I think I thought about that a lot as I consider this idea of privacy, particularly with purity culture, because, and then I'll stop talking, because what we're often taught is that, so we, people take Jesus texts and Jesus says stuff, you know, like when you're going into your little prayer space, don't tell anybody when you're fasting, like don't disfigure your face when you're giving, don't let people see that you're giving. And so it's like, oh, your money is private. Your spirituality is private. How you like where you pray is private, but because everything's out in the open with sex and because it's like the biggest threat to all people in society, money, private, sex and intimacy, public information for whoever feels like they deserve it or are entitled to it. And so what it's come connecting back even to what you're talking about, sin and confession, I was like, oh, in that kind of paradigm, money is not something that can become sinful because it's something that you're doing in private and therefore needs no expression of control or input from anyone else while sex becomes this thing that is open to your leaders because they feel frenetically scared about it. I actually think like this has where we cross the line into privacy being about power, mm -hmm. like more than anything, because one, I just have to reflect that I feel so sad hearing what you're saying. And I think something important to name for anyone who's been in like an emotionally abusive relationship is like that young woman is in an emotionally abusive relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Like full stop, you know, where you have to grovel before this person and you know, they're going to be mad at you and you have to trash yourself in order to achieve some kind of sad proximity to them. Mm -hmm. Like that is so 
heartrendingly sad. Um, yeah, that's really sad. Um, uh, so, yeah. Let me talk about the strange situation test because I think this is where it comes in. And then uh, we, you can redirect me. Is um, So the strange situation test or procedure is a procedure designed to observe attachment in children. And basically it involves separating a child from its uh, primary caregiver and then them reuniting. And one of the biggest things you watch for is the reunification. So like a secure kid, well, we'll a secure kid will go up to their caregiver sobbing because they're very upset. They've been separated. They've been left alone. They're pissed. And they get picked up, you know, caregiver picks them up. And I'll never forget in my class, the baby looked its mother in the eye and cried at her. And the, and the, um, and the professor pointed out, they said, this is like conflict. The baby is crying at its mom because it's upset. It's saying, you left me and I don't like that. <laughs> like, and so there's this security, this desire for reconnection, this comfort with conflict, you know, this comfort with conflict, and then they reconnect and the baby goes back to play. That's what a secure and healthy attachment looks like. And I, you know, not everybody's perfect, but this is why I'm so like flabbergasted that people call the Israelites whiny or like, you know, say you can't question God. I'm like, that's a healthy response. Like, mm -hmm. you left me alone. I'm angry with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's an expression of reconnection. Um, so, but the other babies, so they're the avoidant babies, they, they try to self-manage it all. So mm. they're sitting there and they look calm and the caregiver walks back in and they look really calm. And, you know, parent sits down and they'll kind of like sidle over to the parent. But if you if you measure their stress hormones, if you measure their heart rate, their blood pressure, they are stressed. They're freaking the fuck out. Mm -hmm. They are stressed. But like that caregiver has rebuffed their attempts for love, that the only way they know how to be close to the caregiver is to act like they don't have needs. Mm -hmm. um, and the last kind is someone whose caregiver like sometimes like makes it all about them, makes the baby's needs about them. Like, oh, stop crying. Like you're making mommy upset or like, did I sorry, I'm using mom language. I recognize that that's unfair and the result of misogyny. Caveats all around. Yeah. Yes. Um, email Brandy with your complaints. <laughs> I'll let her Feel deal free. with them. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Um, but so, and so these babies, because their, their caregiver's been inconsistent, they just keep on like wailing, crying. They don't settle down because they've been so confused about like, how do I maintain proximity to this figure and make sure I get the care that I need? I'm just going to go big or go home to try and keep them, you know, swirling. And I think, I think I just see people's reactions to God in those three a lot. Mm. Like, and I think if you, I think like the way people approach God I think it can say a lot about what you've taught God is like. Have you been taught that God is disgusted by you and your mm. needs and is, doesn't really want you around? So you should just try to be perfect and keep your effing mouth shut so you can mm -hmm. maybe slip into heaven with God. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Have you no idea, no idea what keeps God caring for you? So you're like, mm -hmm. I'm just going to 
do whatever I can. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, like, um, so I think that feels sad, but mm-hmm. I don't know that. I think that's just in my mind in the story of the young woman you're talking about, because I'm like, that is not a healthy attachment, which it means that like mm-hmm. God has just been framed as someone who is not reliable, does not care about you, has not consistently cared for you. And like, or, you know, maybe has, you know, every time you have a scary thing in your life that God makes it about God. It's like, well, look yeah. how much you let me down. And I'm just yeah. like, that's not healthy. Like yes. that is abuse. Like that's yes. not healthy. Um, so, so, okay. The private thing, the thing is that people, things that are private are innately the things that we can't touch. Right. Um, so I think people want to make money private (laughs) so that people can't call them out on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and that's, and that's why I think like, it's so noxious for churches to try and act like church goings on are private because Mm -hmm. the whole point is they're shielding themselves from accountability. Like, that's, I don't know, like my daughter, it's very important to her. No one's in the room when she poops. We have not shamed her for pooping, but like, it's not because she's afraid we're going to hold her accountable for pooping. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's because that's something she wants to do on her own time. And I even am wondering like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have shared that. Like, you know, but so I do think, I do think like, sorry, here's another thing that I think is, I think okay i think that christianity suffers from a lack of categories or boundaries like i i think i think like things are so often so ill-defined it's hard to be able to say like well this belongs in a private category but this doesn't like you know like yeah I don't, and I don't quite know how to help with that. I would love to help with that in this podcast because it seems so obvious to me, like, so, or I don't know. I think maybe some of it is realizing that people aren't islands. So maybe some of this has to do with individualism as well. I think you should be allowed to do with some of your money, whatever you want. Sure. Yeah. I think there's some of your money that everybody deserves to like know about and have a say in what happens like because like they are resources and so to be in community or relationship with other people means sharing resources and so Mm -hmm. there is an interplay between privacy and um relationship i this is something that also gets tricky because to be in relationship is to open yourself up but like it's kind of both, right? It's like, who is it? It's Halal who said, if I'm not, if I'm not for myself, who, who am I? But if I'm not for others, what am I? You know? And Mm -hmm. so it's like that idea. It's like, it is both. So yeah, I, I don't know how to help, but I think that's the issue is I think like, I do think what's probably going on is Christians see God as this like invasive narcissist think that the church is Jesus's body of that is the body of a narcissist. <laughs> like, yes. And therefore, but, and because we are Jesus's representation on earth, we must be blameless. And therefore we cannot, we cannot admit when there is not blame, when there is blame, when there's yes. blame in there. But yes. so we feel entitled to police everybody else as God's hand. Yes. But like we are above policing as God's hand. 
yep, that's it. I think yeah. that's it. And I think it's how Which... we can make sense of the dynamic between institutions and people in power believing they are entitled to privacy because they have all of this assumed spiritual authority and why people who they are leading don't get any of that because if you are to give people the privacy they need and want to self-become, they might become something that is detrimental to the thing that's being built by leaders. And I think that that's why we do a lot of taking away of people's privacy, both systemically and functionally. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about uh, the difference between, well, okay, I'm thinking a lot, a lot of things, but one of, one of the theological concepts I've been thinking about a lot is how we take away people's privacy by telling people that they are and their lives are darkness or full of darkness, and that what Christian leaders do is they say, I am bringing the light or I'm shining the light or you need to step into the light, when really what people are saying is I have boundaries around what spiritual leaders in my life get to have any kind of say over. And instead of respecting that boundarying, we call it sin or staying in darkness instead of stepping into the light to then be like healed or be a part of the community. And that kind of spiritual manipulation is a manipulation of people's vulnerability and of their well-being. Yes. And so yes. I think often about the connection between privacy and the ways that the church rewards vulnerability porn, where Whoever gets up with a testimony that has the most like gross vulnerability, like overshare that, sh that like of private information seems the most spiritual because they seem like they're the most in the light or they're the most free when really they may be the most kind of trapped under the indoctrinating forces of a spiritual community. And so when I think about how purity culture builds out a worldview where you do not deserve privacy it also creates a world of increased sexual shame when people want to explore what they like sexually or in their relationships yes. and creates a context where people have nowhere to turn because everything about their sexual life has been policed because of that lack of privacy or the withdrawal of privacy from them and so then any so yes. i think we set up a connection internally that is anything vulnerable is somehow problematic in some way. If something happens to me, I need to share it with somebody and there's never a, we rob people of the choice to one, define their own privacies and two, to disclose those privacies to others. So I think there's a cognitive dissonance that's really noxious here. And it is part of the vulnerability porn is that the more gross and vulnerable people are, the more the church will protect them if they're mm -hmm. in a certain category. Yes. But part of why they do that is because that confession is say is a it is a it's a twisted reconnection like i think because we're saying that the church cannot allow people to differentiate they're not the church much of the church as it exists today is completely anti that separation act that ability to let someone go off and be their own creation and grow mm -hmm. and so to acquiesce to like give up your selfhood is saying, I choose not to differentiate. And so the church greatly rewards people who are grossly vulnerable because it is acquiescing power to keep them in. Like, yes. and so I think that is a, I think that's huge. And we also know that some people get to be vulnerable and some don't because some people by their very nature of who they are, challenge what the church says it wants to like, is self-differentiating. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm different. I'm not a hetero cis white man. And, you know, and they're like, ah, like, 
that is different than what we are about. So please get out immediately. <laughs> you know, like I, and I think that's why like the church seeks to expel because it's trying not to change. It's trying to hold on to this like stagnant God, pure, we own it all. And so, and we don't want to change because change is bad because God's not changing and we can't change because we're supposed to be God's emissary. So we can't, we have to hold it all in. And some people by their very nature, like ask questions, (laughs) like present questions (laughs) and they like vomit them out, vomit them out. Um, and eschew them, right? So I do think, I do, I think something else that is hard, something else that I want to, dare I say, correct, is I do think in our world, boundaries and order have also often gone hand in glove with, uh, eugenics. Like taxonomy mm-hmm. itself has been a means to oppress. Like, I was just thinking about the bullshit of the phrase higher order mammal today. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Excuse me? Like, so, so that's, I think that is also part of why people get squirrely, rightfully talking about like boundaries and like things is, but here's where I think the mistake is. It's in how we talk about creation or how Christians often talk about creation. Christians often talk about creation as if God was practicing until God made humans. Yes. That like, (laughs) that God was just like, oh, you know, Sun and moon, close. <laughs> Let me try again. <laughs> like you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and you know, I've heard it. Even when people are like, "Men aren't the pinnacle of creation. Women are." I'm like, "No, you're all wrong. You know what the pinnacle of creation is? Shabbat, Shabbat. Even like structurally in the text, it is the only thing that stands alone." Like everything else is paired off because it's seven. It's and and there's some great like ways you, some Jewish scholars have visualized this. But like, but what is Shabbat? Shabbat is all the creating is done, and everything has been blessed to keep growing, to be fruitful, to multiply, to like fill fill the earth with its goodness. And God, Shabbat is when God just says, "Ah, like all of this, and it's all good." You know, it's yeah. all good because it's itself and it's separate and it's growing. Yeah. And so, yeah, go. Well, I think that that concept is so helpful for Christians to learn because so much of modern Christian theology and as we were talking about before, kind of total depravity assumes that there is always something wrong that God dislikes and that there's some clear routes that you can take to make things right. This goes back to this conversation of attachment styles. But as I think about even that, that scripture, like, uh, you know, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. And so I think what happens is Christians very frenetically in particular their sexual lives, because one, like sex is vulnerable. Exploring your body with a person yeah. is super vulnerable. And so you're going to have feelings. You're going to have feelings about that. And I think instead of normalizing that you're going to have feelings and figuring out how to interpret those feelings, we instead interpret every feeling as a problem that needs to be put out in public outside of private space in order to bring resolution to that feeling. And so I feel like I have a lot of tension with how the scriptures are used and how the idea of confession is used 
as a catch-all release. Because when we do say things out loud that we're processing and figuring out, there is a physiological release to that. But that doesn't yes. mean that there's a spiritual necessity that accompanies that, that somehow makes God love you more or you be more acceptable or make you less problematic. And so yeah. I think that like creation of disconnection means that people will always be running toward that. And I want to get really, I, I would love for us to get a little bit practical yeah. for folks because we are talking about purity culture, sex, sexuality, yeah. and privacy. And so can we talk just really briefly yeah. about some of the ways that this notion of privacy is taken from people specifically in purity culture. Like, so what are some of the ways Absolutely. that we see that taken? And then we'll talk about how we can start to regain some sense of autonomy and agency in that. Well, I'll actually, I'm going to take it in a, hopefully an interesting direction. Um, so I will say the best sex for me, I will say Elizabeth, the hardest part about sex for me is knowing what I like. Good mm -hmm. sex is only possible if you know what you like. And mm -hmm. you are able to advocate for that. Like, it's just true. Like, mm -hmm. sex is at its best when you know you're doing something your partner likes and your partner's doing something they know you like. Yes. So, but that requires you to know yourself. That mm -hmm. requires you to have the space to figure out what you like. And I think, um, and to communicate that, right? Like, mm -hmm. good sex. So we everything we've talked about, so I think, I think Christians often rightfully chuck out boundaries because they have no paradigm for boundaries to be good. That's why the creation thing, boundaries are good. Like you can only exist as yourself if you have yourself. And uh, so this is actually something I've learned a lot from the BDSM and the poly community. Like I've been amazed at some of the health I've seen of the ability to talk before an mm -hmm. encounter happens and say, hey, this is how I'm hoping this will go down. And also, like, let's talk about how we're both going to say when it's too much. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, the amount of like healthy communication that goes in in the best scenario or like some of my friends who are poly, like the communication about the constant need to communicate about how things feel and the willingness for boundaries to change as things go on is really healthy. But, but it requires one the ability to, to know what you like, the, the blessing to say what you like and what you don't like, uh, the willingness for things to change as an encounter unfolds. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I think just like a desire to enjoy oneself, <laughs> which, yes. I don't, which I think I think has often been taken away from us because we've been told yes. that like, all of our bodies and desires are bad. And I, mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm like, I just, I just don't think God is that much of a troll. I don't think God would make certain things feel so good if they were like, nah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know? So did that help bring it to the, yeah, yeah. To well, the practical? So, so I, well, yes, because I, I think what it makes me think about for many of us, because sex has been private, we've never been given information that you've just described. We've never yeah. been given space to know how to figure yeah. out what we like or desire. We've never figured out spaces to talk about consent or boundaries. Like when I think about being like in my 30s and talking to my friends about sex now and the ways that I can still tell that in Christian spaces, we tiptoe around how we talk about it because of the way that we've been taught that everything about your sex life needs to be either secret because there's consequence for a lack of conscious disclosure or that 
it's just like a private thing that seems to exist like between you and someone else somewhere else. And I'm like, neither of those things are completely true. I think there is a way in which partners choose privacy. And there's ways that the way that we figure out what we like and what we're about and who we are is often by talking and thinking and But it's also by experience. I think about this all the time. Let me tell you. So one of my guilty pleasures is I love like pop punk power chord music. And I like, I'm like, why do I like this? I know it's not good music, but it's like. But, but can I, so that's part of what I would say is like, what we like is arbitrary and unknowable. Sometimes I like something and I could not for the life of you tell me, or I could not for the life of me tell you why I like it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just do. And the only reason I know is because back in the day I was listening to Yahoo music and like some song came on and I was like, I really like this, <laughs> you know? So, so the other thing you're saying that I think slips in is I think binary thinking is here. I think Christianity is very uncomfortable with degrees, like like spectra mm-hmm. in more ways than one. And so I do think even what I'm hearing you say is people feel caught between like, I have to share everything or I have to share nothing. Yes. And I think it, and I'm like, why can't you just share a little bit? Or like, why don't you just share until it starts to feel weird and then stop? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, so something else I want to say, God as the God of BDSM, you don't have to get into it. I know this is a weird turn. I think if you read the scriptures, God tells people what God's going to do before God does it. Yep. So often God says, so Noah, here's what I'm going to do. Are you on board? Are you down? I was like, yes, I don't want to like, or God's like, Hey Moses, here's what I want to do. And God also clearly spoke to Aaron because Aaron is waiting for Moses. Yep. You know, God comes to Mary and says, hey, Mary, or Gabriel comes to Mary. Sorry. And like, it's like, hey, Mary, here's what I want to do. You know, Like, I think God tells people how things are going to go down so they can consent. And I think God is also responsive to when people start feeling weird about it. I really do. And so like in Exodus 19, God tells Moses, get the people ready. They're going to come meet me, you know. And the people start feeling weird during the encounter. They're like, we're a little scared. Moses, can, can you go talk to God for us? Yes. And God responds. Yes. Yes. What happens next is a small delicate delegate of leaders. Yes. Go. Yes. And so I think like, I think like God is very pro consent and that evolving consent and saying like, Oh, this is, this is a little too much for you. Okay. Let's, let's, let's change it. Cause I, you know, let's make it feel good again. <laughs> like, you yes. know, that is a hilarious metaphor that I hope to think more about before I talk specifically about it. But <laughs> what it does, what it does make me think about is that that clarity that you're describing stands in stark contrast to how Christians think about sex as an abstract mystery that cannot be understood. And I'm like, honestly, not that complicated, lots of science, lots of physiological stuff that we can know. But because Christians, because of the purity culture marriage construct, have to make sex so spiritual, so far metaphysical as to not be understandable, and thus not be explorable. And thus, like privacy that people have in their sex lives is all mystery. Like it's, it's mystery, yeah. but Ugh. if it's mystery, if it's in the right context, but every other place, it's public information for people to control and maneuver folks around. No. And, and I you... think that like our boundaries are just really no. bad because I'm like, okay, 
Privacy for me has a limitation of when it's causing harm to self, others, and the world. It's part of why I don't think churches should be able to do NDAs in most circumstances. It's why Absolutely I think government surveillance is problematic because it creates situations and systems of harm for self, others, and for the world. But when we take that kind of idea into the abstract, into, well, sin is breaking the world, secrecy is breaking the world, just show up and be full. Like, that is where we end up with these deep violations of privacy that then keep people from doing the thing that you described in the very beginning as like drawing a boundary around oneself yeah. in which one can live. And so I think that I can see that most Christians do not know how to set boundaries around themselves in which to have healthy sexual exploration and healthy sex lives, regardless of their partnership status, because there's a constant chipping away of that barrier by can I tell leaders. You, can I tell you something I just realized, though? I think it's a setup. I actually think it's on purpose to try and make people hate themselves more. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, I actually think everything you're describing is a setup to make it as difficult as possible for people to enjoy sex and as difficult as possible for people to enjoy being partnered. Mm -hmm. Like, and that is all designed to create dependence mm -hmm. on the church. Like yeah. it's a setup. It's actually on purpose to keep people toxically attached. Like mm -hmm. I actually think, I, th I think it's a setup to just, it's part of the, it's part of the abusive dynamic mm -hmm. because, because I do think like, so I will just say, I think one thing we do see modeled in the Bible, even everything I just said, right, mm -hmm. is the person, the Bible is very clear. I think the Torah especially is extremely clear that if you are powerful, you are not entitled to protection anymore. Your power is your protection. And mm. so it is like, and so this is not about sex, but like the thing I'll use, I'll never forget reading about the year of canceling debts. And it says, don't be evil towards your neighbor and think the year of canceling debts is next year. And then, and I thought my classism is showing, I thought Leviticus was going to tell off people seeking loans not to abuse the system. Nope. It says, don't be tight fisted towards your neighbor and say the year of canceling debts is coming and not give them a loan. And I... And that to me, like that ethic of like, why are you worried? You're rich. You can afford to give a loan. You're protected. Shut mm -hmm. up. God doesn't need to protect you. And so in the same way, the idea that like the church deserves protection or like pastors or people in authority, no authority is saying, I relinquish my protection for the sake of serving the people. Yeah. And, and I understand that pastors have terrible boundaries too. And that's a sure. whole nother podcast episode, yes. <laughs> like, yes. but, but I think like, it's just, it's sorry. It's like, I think it all, I keep looping back to this, but I think what it, it all comes back to this really terrible, noxious image of God. It comes back to this noxious image of God that can't let other people self differentiate that just wants people to acquiesce without asking questions. Mm -hmm. And I just 100% believe that God is absent from the scriptures. I just don't see it at all. Same. I'm like, oh, you know what it sounds like to me? Constantine. Thank you. It like, does sound like Constantine. <laughs> sounds like Rome to me. And so like, yeah, because I don't know. I just don't, I think like a, 
a creative force, a creator is into creating things and letting them grow. And you know what's not? People who want things not to grow. (laughs) So something, a concept we talked about, I think something we see. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, not concepts. Okay. So basically you are entitled to privacy. You're entitled to become yourself. You're entitled to figure out what you like. You're entitled to change your mind about what you like. Like, it's okay. One day I liked a beet. And then the next day I said, this tastes like dirt. I do not like beets. It's okay. (laughs) I have permission to become because I am a creative. I'm created. And guess what? I bet that's exactly what God's like because I bear the image of God. Like, so I think God changes God's mind. Like, like the ocean, like the ocean is so fluid and ever changing. And yet it's still the ocean. I think God's like that. Yes. Um, okay. So how do I make this more practical for people instead of just so, yelling at them to like go enjoy themselves? <laughs> like, Okay. I would love for us as we close to give folks some quick tips on reclaiming their privacy. Because I think that for many yes. of us, privacy feels like sin. Privacy feels like creating a life <sighs> that is not quote unquote above reproach or whatever. And so I think there's probably two ways in which I want to think about this idea of reclaiming your privacy. One is how you reclaim your own. And the other is how do you mind your business? Because I think that most of us want people to be confidential with our own lives, but our poor confidants in and of ourselves, because we feel like other people's private information is a helpful and useful tool for our own social clout. So I think about how it hooks them to us. Yes, it hooks them to us. And it gives us a level of social power with other people as we position ourselves above or as the keeper of a person's private life. And so I think a lot of Christian folks, as we're reclaiming our privacy or our even worldview around privacy, is to learn to mind our business. It's to learn to mind our business and to do the emotional work that is required of us when we feel like someone else's private life is our business, which is to say, why do I feel like this is my business? Straight up, it's a simple question, but I think sometimes we feel an emotional trigger that's been given to us by an indoctrinating Christianity, and we fail to ask the question, why do I feel so strongly about this, and why do I feel like it's my business? So I think many of us could, a quick tip is ask the question, why do I feel like this is my business? Go to a feelings wheel and ask some questions about that. Well, and, and maybe I can guide people. I wonder if you're feeling insecure. I wonder if you're feeling worried that you're going to be left alone. Honestly. Because when you try to look for an unhealthy way to rope people in, it's usually because you feel like they're leaving you and you're afraid of being by yourself. Yeah. Um, so I literally just Googled, I'll send this to you. I saw a brilliant TikTok, I think, of like ways to redirect invasive questions. So I think that's one thing to practice is maybe a really simple one is when someone asks you something that maybe normally you would answer is personal, practice saying like, oh, what makes you want to know? that's my get out of jail free card i ask people questions back all the time because i figure either they have a really great answer or they don't and they have to confront themselves so i think that's a really simple i think people can practice saying like oh like what makes you want to know that's a little bit personal you know (laughs) like you can just say that you know And, and let them answer and you can and if nothing else that gives you a moment because i think one of the ways emotional abuse can work is people catch you off guard. Mm-hmm. And so out of your best, after you're out of your desire to be a good person, you, you answer, you overshare. Yeah. 
and they've got you because they've abused your worst, the best part of you against you. Um, So you can just say like, oh, just, you know, practice like taking breaths. And I mean, maybe in the same way, maybe that's the tool is, you know, I do think that's part of boundaries and privacy thing is like, yeah. So I think maybe the same thing could work for other people is, um, is, you you know, when you want to know about something, maybe say like, you could ask like yourself, sorry, my, I trained a little bit in therapy and the, the question why makes people defensive. So you'll hear me turn it to say like, what makes me think this is, what's, what's this bringing up in me? Like, it's like, why do I think this is my business? But like, what, what, what is making this important to me? Like what? Um, and I think sometimes it is like a healthy desire of like, oh, I want to feel connected to this person and I don't have the skills to do that. Or like, you know, I think maybe some other like really simple, simple, simple things are, um, it's not bad to just sit down and write what you like. Yes. (laughs) Just sit down and write what you like and what you didn't like. I don't care if you like went and tried a Cortado for the first time, just be like, I liked the oat milk more than the, <laughs> more yeah. than the soy milk. <laughs> you know? yeah. You're just saying like, I just, just be honest with yourself about what you like. Like, yeah. I don't know. I think that's where people get really weird is when they, they make up stories to try mm-hmm. to hide themselves from themselves. Yes. So where I'm like, bizarre. no man, like, like I know someone who bought a very expensive house. They were a doctor. They bought a very expensive house far from the hospital where they work because they need to be within 20 minutes and they're like oh yeah it was more than we wanted to spend but you know it was close to the hospital and i was like no it wasn't you bought the house you wanted to buy it's cool bro like i don't care it's fine like and i do think this is where in the best of marriage i do think face yourself it, it depending on how old you are just my mantra with my boss this week has been give up like give up i've had to just admit sometimes like no elizabeth you're not you're not the world's most collaborative person. Give up. You don't. Yep. You're a bad photographer. Give up. Like, it's yep. okay. It's who you are. Like, yes. there's nothing wrong with that. I think, so I think, uh, so maybe the other thing, the other, like, literal skill you can do is, like, write affirmations. I know that's silly, but, like, even I was just writing myself affirmations the other day in preparation for a hard conversation, and, like, I just did it. And, you know, I started crying because I started saying the things I needed to hear. Like, and, you know, I think it's, I think maybe it's hard because I can't, what it is, is it's, it's just a really long, it's a long journey. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I guess this is why I'm so grateful for you, Brandy, and what you're doing in the world is because like, I think people just have really, no idea who God is <laughs> like and yeah. and I, I don't mean that to shame people I mean like no I I think like God is so sad um because I think God watches people I mean I, I'm so I'm so so indignant at the way that the like everything hidden will be made light is framed because that that is should be a survivor's anthem yeah. You know, that should be a survivor's anthem. Like, yeah. like curse words. I'm just yeah. going to pause with the curse words. Um, so it's just a long journey of getting reacquainted with God. And I, I know, I know you, I know this, I know this doesn't work for everybody, 
But like, honestly, some of you just should just find a rabbi. <laughs> oh my God. I like, don't know what else to say. I like, don't know what else to say. I, it's just, it's just so, I, I, I don't know where I can find you the place to rediscover who God is in a healthier yeah. way. Yeah. I can't, I have no church that I know to direct you to. I can't direct you to the Bible because the Bible has been so used against you. Like that. I, I, all I know how to say is like, find a female rabbi or like a tra- Yeah. F- find a rabbi, preferably. I mean, if you can find a rabbi who identifies as a woman, go for it. Like that's your best bet, I think. And just like, I don't know. I, it, it's so funny. This is a side note. But at MLK Shabbat, because, you know, Ebenezer and my synagogue have a really tight relationship, mm-hmm. Senator Warnock was there and he said, every pastor needs a rabbi. And I was just like, you're right. Yes. I know you're just pandering to us, but I actually think you're right. And so I, I do wonder if like, because it it's just, it's just not in Christianity right now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just feel like, I feel like people like Brandy, people like Erna are doing the work to get it there. And probably lots of other wonderful womanist women of color, but I just think you need a reset. And and maybe yeah. like don't be afraid of like losing your faith. But I honestly feel like maybe some people just need to take a break. Yeah. And yeah. and I would encourage you. Judaism is non-proselytizing. I'm not trying to make you Jewish. I promise. But like I I do think like it might help because it's it's different, but it's the same text. Mm-hmm. And it's still like Christianity has already formed you. And it's still the text. And I think it also protects you from fetishization. I think sometimes when people wander off into other religions, they're like, oh, it's because the East got it right. And that's just Orientalist bullshit. Um, So maybe that's my practical tip. It's like, I think everybody should just find a rabbi. (laughs) I don't know. You can cut that. But I I, no, sorry. I don't know what to tell people because it's just a long work of a lot of conversations like the ones you and I have. Not that I feel like I'm healing you in any way. That's not what I'm saying. Mm. You're you're my Havruta, which you should yeah. look up. You know what a Havruta is? I don't know. A Havruta is a Jewish concept of here. We get it. It's um, a Havruta is partnership learning. Okay, I like only the... consider it in like terms of like sparring buddy is like the way like a non <laughs> not abrasive sparring buddy is how I've understood it. But sometimes abrasive, but like on my end. But like no, it's a havruta. So that's another interesting thing about privacy. You know that you're not allowed to study Torah alone, right? You have to be with ten other. There's got to be ten people. Let's be honest. Traditionally, it's literally ten penises. Literally ten penises, not ten penises need to be in the room. So fuck that. But like, it's just so radically different. Like you can't say certain prayers. You can't study Torah unless there are 10 other people and you're supposed to. And like, even when you study personally on your own, it's with a chavruta. Like it's yeah. with someone else who can say, I don't know about that one. <laughs> so anyway, help your audience, Brandy. This is your work. Not my, at this point, I'm like, I'm at a loss. I'm like, go find a rabbi. Good luck. <laughs> Well, one thing that I think is just really simple that we could ask is, what do I want to be private in my life? Yeah. Notice the conversations where you leave and you feel weird. Yes. And that's, <laughs> and that's the thing, because I think a lot of the time we are taught that in many Christian spaces, we are taught that when we have an emotional unload or when we have disclosed a lot about ourselves that we're more spiritual or holy. That is not true. And so I think many no. of us 
use a lack of privacy to perform some type of spirituality or holiness. When in reality, we need to ask the question, what is private? And I think if you're partnered, you have to have that conversation with your partner, regardless about whether it's about sex, money, how you raise your kids, all of those things, all of those things get to be done in conversation and separately. You have things that are private well, to you specifically and confidential that your partner won't disclose to other people. All of that relationally is so important. And so I think you can categorically, you don't even have to start with sex. I actually might recommend not starting with sex because I think it's so hard, but to ask what to me is private? What is private about my job to me? Like what do I want to hold? Yes as yes. mine to hold, as personal to me, as a place where no one else gets to go or only certain people that I choose to get to go there get to go there. How do I, like what is private to me about how I engage with the divine, about prayer, about money? What is yes. private? And then ask the question yes. about those why? Because I think sometimes our reasons for being private are actually not that helpful. And they're a shield for some of us who like me are a little emotionally stunted and just like don't want to pursue connection in a significant way. But I think asking the question why about those things even if you don't let the why shape the hardness of the boundaries that you set around your privacy. And then the other thing I would say to folks is to ask the question, when I am over disclosing or when I am acting out of a space of believing that privacy is not my own or that my body is not my own or that what I do with my body yes. is not my own, ask the question, what message am I telling myself about what God believes about me right now? Because I think if we can ask yes. that question and yes. identify the messages, yes. we can more effectively yes. combat them. So. so I have two other tips for the contemplative folks out there. A really powerful encounter I had with God was when I noticed something in myself that was wrong and in prayer and, and I spoke to God about it and God said, yes, I know. Let's just look at it together. Like, let's just sit mm. with it, you know, of just like, there was no, it was just, yeah, I, I've known and mm. let's, we'll just, we'll just sit there and it's, it's there. And it's okay. We'll just sit here together. And the second thing, the second thing, 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 I think it's, this is tricky for people, but I think notice when you're in, I think it's important sometimes to notice if you're in a position of authority and you know, well, no, here's, here's my real piece of advice. When someone violates your boundaries, believe them. That's my other encouragement. Stop giving people grace. Stop. Just stop right now. Don't do it. If someone violates your boundaries, you are responsible as a grown-up to go and say, I did not like when you did this because it made me feel this. That person's responsibility is to say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. It was not in my intention to do that. How can I do something different? Mm -hmm. And if they don't say that, or if they start doing it again, stop believe them yeah. Yeah. believe them i just that's one thing is like i my other encouragement to people is believe people when they violate your boundaries yep. give them a shot it's your responsibility as a grown-up to give them a shot by saying i didn't like that which is also an act of privacy it's you saying here's my circle of how i'm willing to be treated and you went in it and then if they try to get in again believe them yep and don't give them grace don't yep. Yes, I think we can understand it as an invasion of your privacy is an invasion of your personhood and your well-being. And if we can start 100%. to protect ourselves, it makes a big difference. And it's not to say, I, again, I can hear all the spiritual messages where people are like, but accountability, but transparency. No. And I'm like, no, that's not what no. it is. And no. so for many of us, we just have to choose to be comfortable 
setting boundaries around our privacy for the sake of our own full humanity getting to exist in real time and getting yes, to not unless, be suppressed. Unless caveat is, unless someone else is being put at risk for it. Yep. Some, yep. Uh, no, 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 no. Unless someone more vulnerable than you, who you are responsible for, is at risk. I don't give a shit if your pastor's at risk. Fuck that guy. Like, you know, <laughs> like, I really don't. Um, that is, but like, that's, if, that's if, pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, there's a yeah. side note. So uh, one of my housemates in Intentional Community, it came out, was taking photos of me without my knowledge and all the roommates. And, of course, this person was a music pastor at a church. And, like, you know, I did all the things. And the guy, to his credit, the rector, like, did the right thing. But then I called the rector and I was like, honestly, I just realized I'm holding anger against you because I blame you. Because I've watched this person theo person's theology change. And uh, I, they, you're the one they've been listening to. And to this person's credit, they said, you're right. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm right. <laughs> like, we all know it. Like, I don't give a shit about you. You pastor so many people. Anyway, I think it, yeah. that's also probably another helpful thing of emotional growth for a lot of Christians is start to notice power dynamics. Yeah. Notice and, and a full spectrum of them, a full spectrum of them. Notice like if your silence or your sharing is putting someone more vulnerable than you, who you are responsible for at risk, reconsider. Yes. Um, yes. You're not obligated to. Yeah. yeah. Because inherently privacy is about power. It is about yes. your power to self-determine yes. and yes. about how other people use their power to rob you of your own power and agency in your own life. Yes. So engaging with privacy is a re-engagement with our agency and power in such a way that allows us to fully become. So with all of that, is there That's anything that you want to plug? <laughs> There's really not. The only <laughs> thing I could come up with was Jews. <laughs> No, I really don't. And and it's so weird because like in the nature of privacy, I don't even really feel like people need to contact me. Like if you email Brandy three times asking to get in touch with me, I'll respond. But I understand that's labor on her. So that's it. I, re I really don't need to talk to anyone. <laughs> like... Well, uh, y'all heard it here. Um, the thing Elizabeth is doing right now is Jews. <laughs> Jews. <laughs> I'm not, I actually don't disagree because part of our <laughs> friendship, like our cross religious friendship, is me gaining so much from having you as a conversation partner as a Jewish person and how that's changed my theology and my life. So I just want to say thank you so much for that relationship and for being on the podcast today. It really does mean a lot. You're welcome. Time for Demon Slayer. Demon Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. Again, y'all, I'm so honored to have you on this journey, and we still have a ways to go because this stuff goes deep and intersects with all of the other isms that we've been talking about. So as we continue to unlearn white supremacy, patriarchy, homophobia, ableism, and the like, I hope that these conversations around purity culture would give us practical implications and practical steps that would help us to do a little bit better together. See y'all next time. Well, you'll hear me next time. There's... The audio format makes things kind of confusing, but see ya! Did it again.